pleasant holy day to you, brethren. Trust you've had a wonderful days of unleavened bread. Been very pleasing to be here with you and, and be able to share these days. About three weeks ago, I was having breakfast one morning and my wife started to do some preparatory work for the days of unleavened bread, such as the matter of life we have to live. And she opened the freezer and started pulling stuff out to work out what had to be eaten before the days of unleavened bread arrived. And there was a packet of waffles in there that I had bought some time and started, and she had a look at it and said, oh, don't have to worry about these and put it back in the freezer. I finished my breakfast, went away, and about a week or so later, I arrived home and my wife was doing more deleavening. And I noticed sitting on the counter in the kitchen was the packet of waffles, together with the panko breadcrumbs and uh, various other things which clearly either had to be eaten in a very short period of time or destined for the rubbish bin. And so I said to my wife, what gives with the waffles? And she said, they are leavened. Now, it's a fact of life. I'm sure many of you have found yourself in the same situation. You read something cursorily and it appears to be okay in terms of unleavened bread. But if you watch or look carefully at it, you'll find maybe there is something included there that is not acceptable for unleavened bread. And that's a situation my wife found herself in. She went through very carefully and looked at things. And I think each of us, in, especially in the Western world, have developed this skill of reading the ingredients of products, because we are so dependent on prepackaged goods. Now, last year I was in Kenya for the feast, and it's dead simple in Kenya. Most of the Kenyan ladies only have to look for one or two things. Do they have any self-raising flour? And that's one that'll trip most Kenyans up. And secondly, but least likely, do I have yeast? Because yeast and yeast products form such a very small part of their life. Most of their, most of their food is developed from raw ingredients, from fresh ingredients. And uh, bread, if it's purchased, is purchased from the market and so on. So they don't have a lot of the yeast products in their lives that we have. I've developed a habit myself because in Kenya I've walked down the crackers aisle of the, of the supermarket trying to find something that is unleavened. Fortunately, I'm smart enough to buy my unleavened matzos in England before I go to Kenya because finding unleavened bread in Kenya is like trying to find a needle in a haystack. Of course, when it comes to the Passover, we make our own unleavened bread, which looks very much like uh, a unleavened uh, Indian chapati, and uh, so on. So we just have to do things in a very different way. But in the Western world, we're going to be very much aware of what we're doing, of what we're handling, what we're going to eat. 
And so the cupboards and the refrigerator and so forth get very close scrutiny. Throughout the days of unleavened bread, the same holds true. You go out and do some shopping, you have a look at the ingredients pretty carefully to make sure there is nothing in there that is outlawed or ruled out by the days of unleavened bread. And we have to be aware of that. I'd like to adopt the same approach today, examining very carefully what goes into some of the instructions we're given about these days. Instructions that will help you and me as we move forward in our lives throughout this year, as we continue to develop our relationship with our Passover and his father. So we could call the title of the sermon, The Recipe for Unleavened Bread. Now, I don't know what was spoken, what Dr. Winnale spoke about on the first holy day, because we were in Greensboro with the brethren, but it probably would be a fair comment that he referred to one particular scripture about the days of unleavened bread. And if he didn't, you've heard it so many times in relation to the days of unleavened bread, you could almost recite it by heart. Paul's comment to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where in verse 6 through 8, he tells them, he said, your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. The object is to become unleavened. We are what we eat. We are to become unleavened. For, he said, indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. When Paul admonished the Corinthians to eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, did he just spiritualize the aspect of unleavened bread by choosing two random pious or religious adjectives from the air? Or was there something else working with Paul's mind in penning these words for the Corinthians and you and me? Paul believed the latter to be the case. He just didn't choose words idly. They were, in fact, inspired. Can we truly understand what he was seeking to convey by the simple use of the dictionary application of sincerity and truth? Or was there a much deeper spiritual concept and application that Paul had in mind? So in addressing the, church, the, the epistle to the church at Corinth, Paul reminded them that Jesus Christ, as our Passover, had been slain for a reason. It wasn't pointless. It was for a very great and a wonderful reason. We've been through that in terms of the Passover service itself. 
terms of a preparation for the Passover. And so we appreciate that his death was not just an end in itself. It was for a purpose. For the church, for you and me, that meant that the Corinthians had to become unleavened to rid themselves of malice and wickedness, which had to be replaced by the righteous fruits of sincerity and truth. And then that applied to the Corinthians, it applies to you and me today. If we claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that applies to us individually. These two words convey much more of God's plan and purpose for humanity than appears from a casual reading. Firstly, we should appreciate that these two words relate powerfully to Jesus Christ as our Passover. They sum up his character as a person. His character that enabled him to be the Passover lamb. The value of a person who became my Passover, your Passover, the Passover for all humanity. So let's examine then this expression and start by looking at these two terms. Now, to a certain extent, you might say we could take the negative terms that Paul talks about in terms of malice and wickedness and have a look at those from the opposite perspective. But we don't have time for that. We only have time to look at sincerity and truth. And that will keep us occupied uh, for the time of the sermon this morning. The Greek term that is translated as sincerity is used to convey the concept of a quality or state of being free of dissimulation. You know, there's no shadiness in this person. If they give you their word, that's really what they mean. They're not the type of person that you have to go around asking yourself, now what did he mean by what he just said? There's no dissimulation in terms of a person. Uh, the, uh, one of the lexicons talks about the idea of purity of motive. And that's a way in which we, we would understand sincerity. Even the Greek term that is translated sincerity conveys those ideas. But the Greek term that is translated as sincerity is a composite word. And it derives some meaning, ultimately speaking, from the words that have been put together to create this word. The two words that are used to create the word, which we translate as sincerity, are firstly the word helios, which you would understand, a Greek name for the sun and light, and krina, which is a Greek word that relates to judgment and judging. And so in the uh, Greek language, this particular word also conveyed the concept of being tested by the light of the sun. Or as we might say in the vernacular today, seeing something in the light of day. So that you can really see it. 
Now, I have learned in my experience in life, because I am a person with relatively poor eyesight, that if I have enough light on something, I can really surprise myself how small a type I can really read. But if I try and read it without adequate light, I can't read it for the life of me. It can be going round and round in circles. But if I've got something that I'm examining and wanting to find, read more carefully, if I take it over to a window and go stand underneath a light, presto, there it is for me. I can see it. And so this aspect of sincerity, or you might say even this lack of dissimulation, has something to do with being able to be tested under light. Under a spotlight. You can put it under a spotlight and it holds valid. Do spots or blemishes mar the suitability of a person? When we talk about a person who would dissimulate, what are we talking about? We're talking about spots and blemishes, aren't we? We're talking about faults of character. So a person who is without dissimulation is a person who is, you might say, a person without spot and blemish, to use Paul's terms and the biblical term. Jesus Christ, as our Passover, was as a lamb without spot and blemish. He, ultimately speaking, was sincere. Sincerity was a character of his. And so we can go back to the instructions for the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5 where Moses was instructed, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. And the instruction given to Israel was that they had to take it on the 10th day. The day begins at sunset. So if you are going to find something without blemish, when do you examine it? You examine it under the light of the sun, not under the light of the moon. So in other words, the lamb would not have been chosen at the very beginning of the tenth day. They would have waited until the daylight portion of the tenth day and then chosen the lamb, the daylight section of the tenth day, to make sure that it was without blemish. It was, in fact, a lamb of sincerity, as we might say. And, of course, that's an interesting feature as well, because from the time you could first examine that lamb on the tenth day till the time of the Passover when the lamb had to be slain at the beginning of the fourteenth was three and a half days. Now God gives us instructions and God gave Israel instructions for a great reason. That lamb was kept separate from the flock as part of a household for three and a half days representing in many ways the role of the ministry of Jesus Christ as the Passover lamb. And so the lamb had to be taken without blemish. It would have been taken in the daytime. 
Peter in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 and 19, talked about Jesus Christ as our Passover. Where he told the church in verse 18, he said, knowing that you are not, you're not redeemed from, with corruptible things like silver and gold. From your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as of a lamb without spot, or without blemish and without spot. So Jesus Christ was someone who was without blemish or spot. A characteristic that is also to become part of us. You could read Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. It talks about the church at the return of Jesus Christ being arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the clean linen or the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints, alluding to the same aspect of being without spot and blemish. So we're called to a life where we who have lived an aimless life, as Peter said, are to become without spot and blemish like Jesus Christ. And the aspect of sincerity is what Paul is addressing there. Or what, when Paul uses the term sincerity, he's really referring to this aspect of that. So, can we be examined in the light of day as a possible Passover lamb? Don't look too carefully, folks, please. Turn the lights out. Because I'm not... That sincere yet, I hope to get there, as I'm sure most of you do too. But Jesus Christ was able to be there. The Eternal is going to, the, the Father and His Son are going to examine us in the light of day, just as Jesus Christ was examined, to see whether we have spot or blemish. We're not looking, in this case, at the idea of surface blemishes. And you know, people are constantly posting on Facebook about someone finding a red heifer. And we don't need to get into the red heifer today, but anyone, any rabbi who's looking for a red heifer is looking for, very consciously looking for surface blemishes, blemishes or spots that would nullify that animal as a potential candidate as a red heifer. But we're not looking at surface blemishes. This isn't something superficial, that we can head down to some spa and have some laser treatment on and be rid of, if you have the money. We're examining the inner person for hypocrisy and falsehood, or malice and wickedness. Because, you see, if you go back to those two words we're not going to look at and examine them, they deal with the inner person, not with the outer person. So we're replacing something internally with something that is very important internally. What is my life like internally in terms of spots and blemishes? What is your life like? You know that better than I do. I know that better than you do in terms of myself. And I'd like it to remain that way. The eternal can see and I have to work it out with him. And uh, as we all do. 
Had Paul wished to emphasize the external conditions, he could easily have used another Greek term to describe one being ritually clean or pure. The emphasis is on the inner person, just as it was with the person of Jesus Christ. So very, very important for us. This concern with real sincerity or inward purity had been expressed by Joshua in his farewell address to the children of Israel after they inherited the promised land, the ultimate goal of the Exodus. They had accomplished what the Eternal called them out of Egypt to be in terms of physical space. They had the land. Joshua encouraged them in verse 14 of chapter 24. He said, Now therefore fear the eternal, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of a river in Egypt. Serve the eternal. So sincerity has something to do with the way in which we serve the eternal. Now, of course, Joshua spoke to the children of Israel in Hebrew, and his record is recorded in the Hebrew language. But the Hebrew term translated sincerity has to do with purity as well. The same term was used of the lamb that had to be chosen for the Passover, tamim. It had to be pure, which was to be without blemish. We've already read Exodus chapter 12 and verse 5. So Joshua uses the same term that described the lamb in Exodus chapter 12 verse 5 to describe the quality of unleavenedness that the children of Israel were supposed to have. Hebrew expressions which replicate what Paul and what Peter was saying in the New Testament and the Greek language. We're blessed in that on this occasion, the translators got the two words translated into the same English word. So we can see it. The same term is used of a lamb that had to be chosen for the Passover, I said. While we may think of this in terms of the external characteristics of a lamb, the same term was used in terms of the internal qualities of various servants of God, such as Noah, who in Genesis 6 verse 9 was commanded to be blameless. Well, he, he was described as being blameless in Genesis 6 verse 9. The same word that is used of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 verse 5 and is used of the, for the children of Israel in Joshua 24 verse 14. Abraham was commanded by the Eternal to walk before me and be blameless. Or if we wanted to be correct, be sincere. Be without spot and blemish. The father of the faithful was called to do that. Genesis chapter 17 verse 1. And as we so often sing, it is the blameless person the sincere person who is offered residence in the city of God, 
in Psalm 15 verse 2. We so often sing, who will dwell on your holy hill? It's a sincere person. It is the individual who has absorbed the unleavened bread of sincerity who is going to have a place there. The blameless, or to use the term, same term as used in Joshua, those who live a life of sincerity before the eternal have a good reward, according to Solomon in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 10. So the Bible isn't idle in talking about this need for internal spotlessness or blemishlessness or for sincerity. More importantly, the idea of purity. Lack of blemish was essential to anything used or sacrificed within the tabernacle or temple. Anything was... Certain people were disqualified from being part of a priesthood. Why? Because of blemish. They couldn't fulfill that function. Not because they were a lesser person, but because the Eternal was trying to teach us a lesson about what we are to become as opposed to what we are. So Paul is drawing upon a well-established principle of a type against which the people of God can be measured. The Corinthian church could be measured by the aspect of sincerity. You and I can be measured by that same criteria. Must be measured by that same criteria. It also ties in with his instructions to the Corinthians and to us about God's people being the temple of God. So the idea of being blameless and being sincere in terms of a temple is very relevant to the church. And you could note 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, where Paul said, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, if you bring blemishes into the temple of God, God will destroy him. Our Father will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. It is to be blameless. It is to be without spot or wrinkle. It is to be, in terms of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it is to be sincere. Temple of God is holy. Which temple we, you and me, brethren, are supposed to be part of? Which we can be really excited about. He also reiterated in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. We talked about our body being the temple of the living Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have from the Father, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We're supposed to be glorifying God. So if Jesus Christ was sacrificed as an unblemished or sincere Passover lamb, then as a result of that sacrifice, we are to take on his character, which as Joshua instructed the Israelites, involved putting away the other gods we previously served. Joshua 24, verse 14. So sincerity has much more meaning in connection to Paul 
than a dictionary outline of current usage may convey. It's connected to the quality of Jesus Christ as our Passover lamb. It is connected to the type of people we are to become so that we can inherit the promised land. The same holds true for the term truth, which Paul couples with sincerity. The meaning of truth is highly marginalized these days to mean something that is correct or something that can be verified or proven by evidence. We talk about scientific truths. In terms of that definition, that is a falsehood because what the Bible describes as truth is not something that can be defined by reason. We get an education, don't we? And what do we have? True and false questions. I'm going to have to change them. And we'll call them correct and false. C or F. Or F and F, fact or false. That would really be confusing, wouldn't it? (laughs) Consider this. John chapter 8 and verse 32 Jesus was speaking to the people in the temple, the Feast of Tabernacles time, and he said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. He relates truth to knowledge. You can know the truth. And that's an assumption everyone makes today, that truth is a matter of knowledge. Correct knowledge. If so facto, it's true. False. How does truth set us free? We might answer that the question by stating, well, the knowledge of a plan of God frees us from the concerns and anxieties that humanity suffers. Correct. It does. Truth provides us, you might say, with an incredible hope for the future. Correct. It does. Our lives are not lived in vain. Correct. Absolutely correct. That hope is very real and intended to provide strength to us by our Heavenly Father. He wants us to be strengthened. He wants us to be encouraged by those things. But if we see those things as being truisms or truth, we find ourselves caught in a limited understanding of what really constitutes truth. Those answers being considered to be true simply convey the idea that truth is knowledge. And if you've got knowledge, you've got it made. Not just any knowledge, but correct knowledge. Now, truth and correct knowledge are going to be related. 
but in a way we don't normally consider. One writer said, Herbert Agar said, the truth that makes men free is for the most part the truth which men prefer not to hear. And unbeknownst to him, there is a great deal of truism to that. Was it Winston Churchill who said, most people looking for the truth stumble over it, get up, dust themselves off and carry on. They don't recognize it when they see it. And with respect to both Winston Churchill and Herbert Agar, neither of them really understood the idea of truth either. If truth is then more than just knowledge or correct knowledge, what then is truth or what then is the truth that sets us free? And how does it apply to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? How does it become part of our ingredient for unleavened bread? the type of person we need to be. Or we could go back to Pilate, John chapter 19, and we could ask the age-old question, what then is truth? Nobody knows except God's word. Truth within the Bible relates to something more than just a correct answer. It relates to the inner character of the God family. So that's why I'm saying the idea of a scientific truth without something being revealed by God is not truth at all. It may be a scientific fact. It may be provable. But please don't apply the term truth to it when you say God does not exist because truth is defined by the very character of the God family. When the Eternal revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, Moses wanted to see what God looked like or what the Eternal looked like. And the Eternal said, you can't see my face. In fact, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock and I'm going to put my hand over your face and I'm going to pass before you. So what could he see? The Eternal wanted Moses to see something other than what Moses wanted to see. Because seeing the physical shape of God or of a God family is ultimately speaking irrelevant. You don't need to see it. Look around the room. Look at the other people in the room. We're made in the image of God. So what are you going to learn? If I could go back to Kenya again, in 1975, Mr. Armstrong gave a, a lecture before some 1,500 people in Nairobi in the Kenyatta Conference Center. And he said, Jesus Christ's face is not black like yours. Wow. And he paused, a very pregnant pause, he said, nor is a pale and sipid like mine. He said, Jesus Christ shines like the sun in full strength. Wow. Yeah. Just see someone with a radiant visage. Paint them gold. Put a Tutankhamun mask on them or something of that nature and burnish it up. 
Then you've got a little bit of a visage of what the God family is like in terms of physical appearance. But what the Eternal wanted Moses to know was what his character, what was the motivation that drove him as a being, that led him to call the children of Israel, that led him to be faithful to the promises to Abraham beforehand, that led him to create humanity in the first instance for a great purpose. What is the character of this being? And so in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, the eternal passed before Moses and proclaimed. And this was the important thing that Moses had to get. The eternal, the eternal God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Mm, he abounds in truth. It's part of his character. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. We come to John's Gospel in John chapter 1 and verse 14. Jesus Christ is introduced to us when he came to John the Baptist. Verse 14, John chapter 1, John records for us the word, a being that we've been introduced to in the first two verses of the chapter, the word who was with God and was God, this being, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the very manifestation of Jesus Christ in terms of his character was grace and truth. Very important for us to consider. The Gospel of John records much for us, the teaching of Jesus about truth. But perhaps it's his instruction to the disciples around the Passover table in which the subject of truth comes closest to what Paul is trying to convey to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. Jesus promised the disciples something. How was that spirit, that advocate, described? Can you cast your mind back eight nights and remember reading those verses? Jesus promised to the disciples and to you and me, a spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit was described by Jesus Christ as being a spirit of truth. A gift from the Father as a helper in light of the fact that Jesus Christ was no longer present with them. It was a spirit that was no longer was not available to the rest of humanity. It was only available to those to whom the Father would give it, to those who had been called, and to those who obeyed. If we put several scriptures together, and we know furthermore that it was given by the laying on of hands. So as I said, it's oxymoronic 
for a scientist who doesn't believe in the existence of God to talk about truth claims. Sorry, fella, you're using the wrong term. Because truth is a quality of the God family. And it is a quality of the God family that our father and his son desire to be part and parcel of us as a result of the sacrifice. And so it was a spirit that was not available to the rest of humanity, only to the faithful followers of Jesus Christ and his father. That spirit, that same spirit, was going to lead them into all what? Scientific knowledge? It was going to lead them into all truth as it would reveal the things of the Father. So note, John chapter 14 and verse 17. We can pick up three occasions here at the Passover where this aspect of truth, the spirit of truth, is used. John chapter 14 and verse 17. Jesus said he was going to send the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. This is something the vast majority of humanity cannot receive at this point in time. But they will at one time in the future. They will have that opportunity. And they will then have the opportunity to eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth just as you and I can today. The world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Who's him? The Father. Has no relationship with the Father. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. Or will be in you. Through his Spirit. John chapter 15, the next chapter in verse 26. Jesus said, when the Helper comes whom I shall send to you from the Father. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify to me. Ah, so the Holy Spirit is a spirit which testifies to the truth of the Father. What the Father is like. What his Son is like. Because, you see, truth, ultimately speaking, is a character issue. John also talked about character, or about truth, in terms of Satan. He described Satan as being the father of lies. Why? Because there is no truth in him. It's a character issue. Not a fact issue. It is character first, fact second, if we want to prioritize it. Sets the whole idea of the way in which we use truth quite easily on its head. Satan probably knows many of the correct answers. But just because he knows correct answers doesn't mean to say he has truth. He's still the father of lies. And I look around the room and I see many parents here. And each and every one of us have contrasted truth and lies to our children before today, correct? 
have been down that path. I tried to help them understand that. John 16 and verses 13 through 15. The next chapter, he talks about the spirit of truth. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And how is he going to do that? Through a test tube in a lab? No, nope, not at all. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he is, it will speak. For it will tell you things to come. It will glorify me. It will take of what is mine and declare it to you. It's going to help you understand the things of God, of a divine character, of the divine purposes. And of course that, as we talked about a little earlier on, is going to provide great hope for us. All things that the Father has are mine, said Jesus. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So this concept of the relationship of the Spirit to truth was not something new in the New Testament. The psalmist understood it very clearly. Psalmist being led by God's Spirit to write the proper, holy way of life expressed it in this manner. I'll read it to you from Psalm 25 and verse 3, and I'm reading these two from the English Standard Version, the ESV, rather than the New King James that I've been using so far. The psalmist praying to the Eternal. Lead me in your truth and teach me. Ah, so the psalmist realized that truth came from the being that he worshipped in a profound way. You are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. So he understood where truth came from. Element of being taught the ways of God so that we take on the very character of God. Psalm 86 verse 11. Psalm 86 verse 11. Teach me your way, O eternal that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 86 verse 11. Truth has to do with the way of life we walk. Why do we walk a particular way? Why do we put unleavened bread out of our lives? Why do we seek to become spiritually unleavened? Because we seek to emulate the very character of God. We want to walk in his ways. and We want to be like him. So truth relates to a godly way of life. Something that cannot be learned without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the action of the Holy Spirit. It represents a way that can be characterized by purity or sincerity. It also characterized Jesus Christ. Stop and consider Pilate again, standing there before Jesus. Crowd having clamored for him to be crucified. And Pilate saying to Jesus, what is truth? And he's looking at truth. He is looking truth in the eye as he said that. And he didn't realize the question he was asking. 
be a rather chilling moment for Pilate when he's resurrected in, I would presume, a great white throne judgment. And he comes to realize the last question or the last words he spoke to this man who is now his Lord and Master. Jesus Christ might tell him, okay, Pilate, you've got so many years now to learn what truth really is. And don't go to the philosophers. Go to my word and start to walk the way that I have instructed so that you really can come to understand what truth is. It is my character. I am what truth is. And you see, in instructing us to eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, Paul was challenging you and me to develop that same character. Sincerity and truth were hallmarks of the life of a person who had generally accepted, genuinely accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So in teaching the eating of the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, Paul is instructing us to become pure just as Jesus Christ was pure and a suitable sacrifice for the Father, but also to take on the spirit of truth which guided the character and way of life that Jesus Christ lived. In other words, we are to emulate him. We are to become like him. But the words take on a greater dimension when they're considered together. Because we use concordances which are based the way they are, we tend to look at words in the Bible individually. But certain words in the Bible should be looked at in conjunction with other words. And what we have before us is another occasion in which words should be taken together, not individually. Because the whole, you might say, is greater than the sum of the parts. Use that adage. I've talked about the parts. Now let's have a look at the whole of it. Did you note that when we read somewhere else, we came across these same words before? They were written in Hebrew and translated into English. They have the same meaning and application as the words that Paul wrote in Greek in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They were taken from the Hebrew. And the translation of sincerity and truth is absolutely appropriate for them. We did read very quickly Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14. Let's go back there again. And let's look at the context in which Joshua is speaking to the children of Israel and learn something about what the Apostle Paul is saying to us as well. Joshua chapter 24, the last chapter of Joshua, verse 14. He said, Now therefore fear the eternal. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Or as Paul said, eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Same thing. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods 
which were your fathers, which your fathers served, on the other side of a river, that's the other side of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers, and in Egypt. Serve the eternal. Commit yourself to the eternal. The context of Joshua's address to Israel on this occasion was the reconfirming of a covenant with the eternal. So we could say that this term, sincerity and truth, has a relationship to the covenant that we enter into as a result of taking the Passover of Jesus Christ or the blood of Jesus Christ. What sort of people are we to be as a result of eating those emblems some eight days ago? In eating of a bread and drinking of a wine, <coughs> excuse me, please, we enter into a covenant relationship with the Father and His Son. So these words, so these terms, have a relationship to the covenant we have accepted. For Joshua, they were a hallmark of a covenant Israel had accepted. That Israel had accepted and entered into it, into it Mount Sinai. At the end of his life, Joshua was uh, reiterating the covenant and his demands on the life of the Israelites. Like Joshua's instructions to Israel, such action on our part requires that we put away whatever standards controlled our lives previously. The gods of, the, gods of the, the other side of the river and the gods of Egypt were all gods of malice and wickedness. They were evil gods. They certainly had evil to them. gods that contained our lives previously. We are now to be a representation of a God we have entered into a covenant relationship with. The answer to our initial question of what did Paul mean by the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth is that Paul had a view of the Feast of Unleavened Bread that harmonized with the view the eternal had intended from the beginning. That the plan of God, the holy days of God, were to bring us into a relationship with him, whereby we become part of the God family. That's our Father's relationship intention from the beginning. It wasn't just a good choice of words by Paul but rather a meaningful and understanding application of the words that are recorded for us even to this day. So we have a recipe for unleavened bread, a recipe we can eat on as we go forward. We can start to see, do my actions, does my behavior, do my thoughts, do my intents, have sincerity to them? Are they unblemished and unspotted? If you see blemishes and spots in them, 
then we need to rid ourselves of them. Do they harmonize with the very character of my Heavenly Father and His Son? Are they representative of the truth that He was? That the divine family is comprised of? Or are these my own ideas of what I want for myself at anybody else's expense? We can start to examine ourselves and see where sincerity and truth appear in the recipe of our lives. Not just ending tonight, but from henceforward until we gather again for unleavened bread next year, or the Passover in particular next year. So brethren, let's eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, and so accomplish our Father's purpose for our lives.